Welcome to the History Guy podcast, a podcast dedicated to lesser-known historical tales. I'm your host, Josh, son of the History Guy, and, like him, a student and lover of history. We tell all kinds of stories from history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know just what we might talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new type of documentary streaming provider determined to bring you the finest documentaries from around the globe. As this is our inaugural episode, let me introduce myself. I'm Josh, the History Guy's eldest son and a senior writer for the channel. As part of our effort to make quality historical content and to reach more people, I'll be hosting this podcast, which will include both older content in a new form and brand new exclusive content for myself and the History Guy. On today's episode, we have two stories about military aviation history. First, the story of Bill Weaver and Jim Zweyer, who were conducting a test in an SR-71 Blackbird when the plane disintegrated mid-flight. The second story is about another experimental aircraft, the XB-70 Valkyrie, and a mid-air photoshoot gone wrong. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. There's an old airplane story that's called the L.A. Speed Check. It goes something like this. A, a pilot of a single-engine Cessna calls the Los Angeles Air Route Control Center and asks for a speed check. He wants to know how fast he's going, and the center tells him he's going about 90 knots. Immediately thereafter, another pilot, someone in, say, a twin-engine Beechcraft, trying to make fun of how slow the Cessna goes, asks for a speed check, and the center tells him that he's going around 121 knots. But... Almost immediately thereafter, another voice chimes in, and this is a Navy pilot who's flying in an F-18 fighter jet, and he doesn't really need to know how fast he's going. He's got an airspeed indicator inside his cockpit. He's just trying to prove to everybody out there on the frequency that he's flying the biggest, baddest, fastest jet in the world, and show all those Cessna and Beechcraft owners how fast our plane really flies. And the, the LA Center radios back that he's going a, an impressive 620 knots, and you think that would be enough to win this little contest when another voice casually asks, This is Aspen 3-0. Can you give us a speed check? And after a moment, the center responds, Aspen 3-0, we have you going 1,993 knots. That story, which was related in Brian Scholl's book, Sled Driver, Flying the World's Fastest Jet, shows how extreme the world's fastest air-breathing manned jet aircraft in history, the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, really was. But, you know, if you fly in an airplane that can go more than three times the speed of sound and almost into outer space, one thing's important. You don't want to fall out. And if you did, it would be history that deserves to be remembered. In late 1957, the CIA approached the defense contractor Lockheed, asking them to secretly design an undetectable spy plane. The project, called Archangel, was to be handled by the Lockheed Advanced Development Projects team, led by legendary aircraft engineer Kelly Johnson. Lockheed's Advanced Development Project unit was called the Skunk Works, a, a nickname it had gotten since the original facility had been built near an old plastics manufacturing plant that produced awful smells. In 1955, the Skunk Works had gotten a CIA contract to build an ultra-high-altitude spy plane designed for flying over the Soviet Union and photographing sites of strategic interest. The plane was the Lockheed U-2, a plane able to fly at such a high altitude that it was thought to be outside Soviet radar capacity and invulnerable to Soviet fighter aircraft and ground-to-air missiles. The new request was for a plane that could go even higher and faster than the U-2. 
The need for such a plane was highlighted when a Soviet S-75 ground-to-air missile successfully shot down a U-2 in May of 1960, causing an international incident. Project Archangel produced a single-seat reconnaissance plane called the A-12 and a two-seat fighter-interceptor prototype called the YF-12 that set speed and altitude records in 1965. While the F-12 never made production, it was used as a model for an Air Force reconnaissance plane that was longer than the A-12, held more fuel, and had a two-seat cockpit. The plane ended up with the designation SR for Strategic Reconnaissance 71. Painted a blue so dark that it was almost black to camouflage the plane against the night sky, it earned the nickname Blackbird. A total of 36 SR-71 Blackbirds were manufactured. The SR-71 was designed for flight at over Mach 3 with a flight crew of two, the pilot in the forward cockpit, and the reconnaissance systems officer operating the surveillance systems and equipment from the rear cockpit and directing navigation on the mission flight path. Traveling at supersonic speeds meant that the outside of the aircraft would get very hot, more than 600 degrees, so Lockheed could not use aluminum. The plane was 92% titanium inside and out. While titanium has low density and high strength, it offers unique challenges in manufacturing. But most problematic is that the ore needed to make titanium is rare and in short supply in the United States. The major supplier of the ore was the Soviet Union. The U.S. surreptitiously worked through third world straw buyers to acquire the ore. The plane was designed to reduce its radar cross-section, an early version of stealth. That combined with its speed and altitude made the plane virtually invulnerable to countermeasures. The SR-71 was powered by two Pratt & Whitney J-58 engines. This axial-flow turbojet engine was designed to be most efficient at speed Mach 3.2, although later experience showed that it may have been even more efficient at higher speeds. But there was a complex problem at those speeds. Air coming inside the engine had to be slowed to subsonic speeds to maintain consistent flow to the compressor. This was done by moving a cone that was called a spike inside each inlet. But as the airflow reduces, it causes a disturbance, a shockwave called normal shock. An analog computer within the engine would control a complex system of bleed tubes and bypass doors to handle the pressure. However, the early analog computers would often have difficulty keeping up with rapidly changing flight conditions. If the pressure inside the engine became too great, it could blow back out the front of the engine, disrupting airflow in what was called an inlet unstart. The unstart initially causes immense drag because of the forward blowback and would often extinguish the afterburner, causing asymmetrical thrust and violent yaw. Inputs from the autopilot system and the pilot could counter the yawing, recapture the shockwave, and return the plane to normal operation. But an unstart would almost always result in a rough ride, sometimes accompanied by violent banging noises and counter-yawing. The yawn could be so violent that the pilot's helmets would bang against the canopy. The effect was described as like being in a train wreck. There were also challenges given the plane's altitude ceiling, above 80,000 feet. A normal pilot's mass cannot provide enough oxygen for a pilot above about 40,000 feet, and breathing becomes impossible above 49,000 feet, as the pressure at which the lungs excrete carbon dioxide exceeds outside air pressure. At 62,000 feet, some 18-plus kilometers, the pressure reaches something called the Armstrong Limit. Named after the pioneering flight physician who identified the phenomena, the Armstrong Limit represents the altitude above which atmospheric pressure is sufficiently low that water boils at the normal temperature of the human body. Simply put, a human cannot survive above this limit, as their blood would literally boil. To withstand the conditions, air crews for high-altitude craft have to wear pressurized suits, in the terrible scenario where an aircrew had to eject at extreme altitudes, the suit had a built-in oxygen tank designed to keep the suit pressurized. 
The SR-71's performance would subject it to extreme conditions. Planes returning from missions often would have rivets ripped out, or panels that were delaminated, or parts like air intakes that had to be repaired or replaced. And one place where the extreme conditions that affected this airplane showed was in aircraft losses. Of just 32 SR-71s built, 12 were lost to accidents, and the first of those accidents occurred during the plane's testing phase on January 25th, 1966. The plane, tail number 952, took off from Edwards Air Force Base at 11.20 a.m. The pilot was Bill Weaver, an experienced Lockheed test pilot. Jim Zweyer, a Lockheed Flight Test Reconnaissance and Navigation System Specialist, was in the rear. The two were investigating procedures designed to reduce trim drag and improve high Mach cruise performance. The latter involved flying with the plane configured with the center of gravity located further aft than normal. The first leg of the flight went normally, and the SR-71 was refueled by a KC-130 tanker. Weaver increased the plane's speed to Mach 3.2 and climbed to 78,000 feet. Several minutes later, the right engine automatic inlet control system failed, requiring a switch to manual control. This was common in the early test phase of the aircraft. But as Weaver took the plane into a scheduled 35-degree bank turn to the right, the right engine suffered a dreaded inlet unstart. The resulting asymmetric thrust caused the plane to roll further right, increasing the bank to 60 degrees, and pitch up. Weaver yanked the control stick as far left as it would go, but it seemed to have no effect. Knowing the chances of surviving an ejection at Mach 3.18 and 78,800 feet was not very good, Weaver hoped to be able to get the plane to a lower altitude and speed to allow a safe ejection. He yelled for Zweyer to stay with the plane as they attempted to gain control, but the G-forces were so strong that the words came out garbled and unintelligible. Part of the problem was the nature of the test flight. Moving the center of gravity aft of normal specs reduced the Blackbird's longitudinal stability. Given the yaw from the inlet unstart, the reduced longitudinal stability combined with the increased angle from the turn and the speed and altitude, the cumulative forces simply exceeded the automatic system's ability to control the plane. The radical G-forces were beyond human limits, and Weaver and Zweyer lost consciousness, neither able to activate the ejection system. The airframe initially broke apart aft of the cockpit. SR-71, tail number 952, disintegrated in midair. Back at Edwards, the plane disappeared from radar, and they lost radio contact. The initial assessment was, was that the flight crew could not have survived such a violent breakup at that speed and altitude. When Bill Weaver woke up, he thought he was having a bad dream. His next thought was, no one could survive what just happened. Therefore, I must be dead. But as he became more aware, he could hear rushing wind and what sounded like straps flapping. He was alive and had somehow separated from the aircraft, despite not activating the ejection system. In fact, he had been thrown clear in the accident. His ejection seat was still with the wreckage of the plane, falling to earth at that very moment. The flight suit had apparently done its job, with the oxygen tank that was attached to the parachute harness inflating the suit to keep it pressurized. That was itself astounding, given the violence of the plane's breakup. And it was a good thing, otherwise Weaver's blood would be boiling. But the visor on his helmet was iced over. While he could tell that he was falling, he couldn't see. Air density at high altitude is insufficient to resist a body's tumbling motions, and centrifugal forces high enough to cause physical injury could develop quickly. The parachute system was supposed to initially deploy a small chute that should keep him from tumbling. But he couldn't be sure that it had deployed. As he had no idea how long he'd been unconscious, he didn't know how far up he was, or how long before he might experience the rapid deceleration caused by colliding with the Earth. But the small chute had deployed, and he was falling vertically. The main chute should open automatically at 15,000 feet, but he could not be sure the automatic systems were functioning. He tried to find the manual activation for the chute, but his hands were numb by cold, and with the suit inflated, he couldn't find it. But just then he felt the reassuring sudden deceleration 
caused by the opening of the main chute. He lifted the faceplate on his visor, only to find that the latch was broken and he had to hold it up. Given the plane's speed, he couldn't even be sure which state he was going to land in, and the ground below looked desolate. He could see the burning wreckage of the airplane on the ground some miles away. And most importantly, he was reassured to see Jim Zwayer's chute open some distance off. Despite being an experienced test pilot, Weaver had never actually jumped out of an airplane before. This was his first parachute landing, and he said it went okay, despite nearly landing on what appeared to be a very surprised antelope. Given the size that the search area must be, he figured he'd have to figure out how to survive the night before he could expect rescue, but on that count, he was wrong. He was busy trying to collapse his parachute while having to hold up his faceplate when he heard someone behind him say, Can I help you with that? It turns out the plane had broken apart over a New Mexico ranch owned by Albert J. Mitchell Jr. Mitchell and several ranch hands were branding colts when they heard a noise and saw parachutes descending from the sky several minutes later. Mitchell was a pilot and owned a small Hughes 300 helicopter and had immediately flown to where Weaver had landed. After helping Weaver collapse the chute, Mitchell flew to where Jim Zwayer's chute had landed, only to find that Zwayer was deceased. His neck had apparently snapped when the airplane broke up. After the accident, Weaver found out that the flapping noise that he'd been hearing as he was falling was because the heavy nylon straps that had strapped him into the aircraft had been shredded by the accident, and that shows how impressive it was that his flight suit held together through all of that. But he also found out that the oxygen tank that connected to his flight suit was connected by two tubes, and one had torn loose and the other was barely hanging on. If that second tube had torn loose, then the flight suit would not have inflated and he would have died. Albert Mitchell flew Weaver to the nearest hospital, which was in Tucumcari, New Mexico, and Weaver remembers being terrified because Mitchell kept the little helicopter speed above the red line for the entire trip, and Weaver was thinking how ironic it would be that if he survived falling out of an SR-71 at 78,000 feet, only to die in a little helicopter on the way to the hospital. Lockheed decided as a result of the accident to discontinue any testing of the SR-71 that put the center of gravity aft of specs, and they solved some other problems through aerodynamic means. And eventually, a digital computer replaced the analog computer that controlled the air intakes, and those intake unstarts became much more rare. The Air Force retired the SR-71 in 1998, and NASA retired theirs in 1999, but there are persistent rumors that the Skunk Works is working on a successor to the SR-71 that some people claim will be twice as fast. In its 33 years of service, Jim Zwayer was the only SR-71 crew member to die in a flight accident. Bill Weaver was back flying SR-71s within a week and eventually became Lockheed's chief test pilot. He retired and lives in Carlsbad, California. What an incredible story of survival against all odds and a tragic reminder of the dangers of testing cutting-edge technology. Now, I'd like to take a moment before introducing our next segment to talk to the history guy about these two episodes and a little bit about this whole podcasting thing. First off, Let's talk about the episode we just heard. Every piece of the story is incredible. Not very many people can say they've survived their plane coming apart mid-flight. How did you come across this story? That's a really good question, because it really goes to the heart of kind of how we identify topics for episodes on the History Guy, and there's a lot of ways that we do that. For this particular episode, I knew I wanted to talk about the SR-71. It's just an interesting plane with an interesting history, and of course, it's a it's a really spectacular plane, and a lot of people are really interested in it. So I, I think I literally just typed into Google Stories about the SR-71 and found several, and this one was just a very compelling story. You love to have a story, especially one that has a, a 
a happy ending that he managed to survive. And we've told some other SR-71 stories since, and we'll probably tell some more in the future. But this one was just so compelling that uh, the moment that I read the, the story, I, I knew this had to be an episode. And it's really a perfect fit for what we do, because we like to kind of use that magnifying glass to focus down on single, you know, short instances that really have a lot of emotional impact. This story definitely has that. As I was listening to it, I kept thinking, wow, there's such a series of events, and he seems to defy luck so many times that every new problem seems like it has to be the one that's going to keep him from making it to the ground alive. What sticks out to you as the most surprising part of this story? When you understand the story, the real surprise is that he survived. And it's not just that it's shocking that you could survive a fall from an aircraft that's on the edge of space going three and a half times the speed of sound, but... When he got to the ground, uh, you know, he realized that uh, the equipment was not in very good shape. They hadn't used the ejection system. Actually, the, the straps had separated and there were parts of the equipment that had pretty much uh, come close to falling apart. Uh, and so uh, Bill Weaver, really, uh, the miracle that he survived is not just the distance he fell and everything like that. It's that uh, there was really a threads difference between gear that was critical to his survival failing and succeeding. And you see that because uh, Jim Zweier, the uh, the navigation system specialist, all of the equipment that automatically opened his chute and everything like that worked. And he uh, tragically didn't survive. And so it's, it's a compelling story and a shocking story because it shows really how thin that line is between you know life and death and that's part of what makes the story so interesting and compelling absolutely and you know a lot of people talk about the the impact of the sr-71 or the coolness factor of the sr-71 and i what can you say about the significance of this plane historically well, technologically, of course, it's a very important aircraft. The The speed record held by the SR-71 still hasn't been broken. It's been nearly 50 years. It might really never be broken because there might never be a reason to build a manned air-breathing aircraft that would go that fast again. All the, uh, the ones that might replace the SR-71 are, are likely to be unmanned. But beyond the technology of it, it's really hard to tell because a lot of what happened with the SR-71s is still classified. Of course, it was really built as a Cold War aircraft. And so we don't really know for sure if there was something that that aircraft saw or something that that aircraft deterred that might have been critically important. I mean, at some point, an SR-71 might have been a piece of deterrence that prevented some sort of miscalculation that could have led to a nuclear war. Uh, its primary purpose, even in the Cold War, was really in terms of propaganda. I mean, we announced that we had the plane. LBJ announced that we had the plane. So we weren't keeping it a secret, even though uh, we knew the Soviets would have trouble finding the plane. Uh, and so uh, it's kind of hard to say historically how important it was. You simply have to look at how important might it have been because that technology might have been critical to being able to understand each other and each other's capabilities and what was going on and what intents might have been at a time when a miscalculation for that could have been catastrophic for the entire world. I do want to talk about something a little different. You know, on the YouTube channel, you often talk about Magellan TV, and I just want to talk to you about it now. They sponsored the episode, this podcast, and we want to thank them for sponsoring this. And I also just want to ask, do you really watch Magellan TV? And if so, what are you watching these days? 
I really watch Magellan TV. You know, we got our subscription because they started sponsoring us on the YouTube channel last year. And I absolutely love it. I've always loved documentaries. And actually watching old documentaries is part of what brought me into doing what I do with the history guy and writing the scripts that we do. Uh, Magellan TV is just awesome. It's actually made by the filmmakers. These were documentary filmmakers that created the channel. And there's like 3,000 documentaries on there and they're adding new stuff every week. And uh, there's a lot of history content, fantastic history content, but they also do things like science and space and nature. And I love all that stuff. I mean, even though I talk about history on YouTube, I, I love watching things about space or about uh, the, the future of black holes and all sorts of stuff that they've got on Magellan TV. Uh, it's just a lot of fun to watch. And it's a lot of fun to have at your fingertips, you know, that many documentaries. I was just watching one and I love this one. I watched it before. It's called uh, Titans of War, Evolution of the Battle Tank. <laughs> I have to say anybody who is a fan of the history guy knows I do like military history and tanks are just, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it highlights the tank museum out in Bovington. And I had the opportunity to go out there last year. We're supposed to go out this, this year, but of course COVID made that impossible. But I got a chance to go out there last year and make a video with the people at the tank museum. They're great people. They let me stand in a running tank, but they had to have someone in there with me because they were afraid I was going to steal it. That documentary is a lot of fun. And there's just a lot of great footage of driving around in tanks and shooting tanks. And it's just the sort of cool thing that you can find on Magellan TV. And I was just watching parts of that again today because I enjoy it so much. Well, and who doesn't like tanks? I'd watch that all day. Um, <laughs> I know that they They've don't- They've got several documentaries on tanks. That's not the only one they have. There's a bunch of them. So many documentaries, there's always something new to choose from. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, it's really convenient because I can watch it on my iPad or my iPhone or my TV or my computer. It depends where I am. You can stream from your phone to your uh, TV if that's what you want to do. So it's really convenient. It's really easy to use. And they've always got some sort of special offer going for our fans because they we advertise this with us so much. So you can always get a deal uh, if you go on. I think that's uh, try.magellantv.com backslash history guy is our link. And if you go to that link, then there's always going to be some sort of great offer. I think right now it's probably an extended month long free trial. Uh, and that's one of the great things that they do for us. Our fans get this special access to this. And I really do enjoy, I love my subscription to Magellan TV. I use it all the time. I watch it every day. If you love the history guy, and if you like documentaries, the Magellan TV is a great subscription to have. Before we move on to our next segment, I do want to talk about one more thing. You know, this is our first podcast, and I just kind of want to relate to the viewers what your vision is for these podcasts. We've had people suggesting that we do a podcast for some time because, of course, our, our primary channel is through the YouTube channel. And uh, the stuff that we're doing on the YouTube channel primarily is audio. We could do it uh, as a podcast. I think what we really want to do here, because we're going to be largely using the same stories that we've used on the YouTube channel, I think what we really want to do is to be able to add a little bit of color and understanding and a new way to listen to and enjoy the sorts of stories that we've told on the History Guy. I also think that we're going to put some unique content on here. Also, uh, one of the things about the YouTube channel is that we seek out all the public domain material that we use to illustrate the episodes. And there's some stories that we just haven't been able to tell just because we couldn't find photographs or videos or that to support it uh, that would fit here to the audio format. So I hope it's going to be a new way to enjoy the content that people have heard or might have heard on YouTube, as well as a way to kind of use our history guy storytelling in a new format and tell some stories that we haven't been able to tell or at least tell very well on the video format actually can already think of a few that I haven't written because I thought they'd be uh, difficult to find media for. So this is a this is a perfect example. So now let's talk about what, what the next segment is going to be, which is going to be about the XB-70 mid-air collision. Uh, what drew you to this particular accident? 
Much like the SR-71, I knew I wanted to talk about the XB-70. It's another spectacular, exciting aircraft. It's another one that just because, even just because of its appearance, as well as all of its amazing performance characteristics, is just one that draws your attention. I actually got to see the uh, XB-70 at the Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton when I was a Boy Scout. I think it was maybe 13 years old, and it left a lasting impression on me. And then the last time I was over to that museum, it had been moved inside and was in much better condition. They'd, they'd taken care of it and, and restored it. And so I, I knew I wanted to talk about the XB-70. Uh, and at that point, I mean, I think there's a lot of stories to tell about the SR-71. But when you talk about the XB-70, you really have to start with the fact that only two were ever made and only one still exists. And that means that it was kind of natural to go to what happened to that first one. And that gave a chance also to talk about some other interesting things around the XB-70, like the, the time that the pilot saved it with a paperclip. Uh, so it really, when you get to the XB-70, this was the obvious story to tell. And like the story uh, about the SR-71, it's another one that's a really good fit for the sort of time frame and sort of story that we like to tell on the History Guy. Yeah, the, the XB-70 doesn't get anywhere near the kind of attention that the SR-71 does. But I do think that the, the name for it, the Valkyrie, is a really sick name for a plane. What what do you think the XB-70's place is in the history of development that led to the Blackbird? Well, of course, I'm, I'm a historian. I'm not an aircraft engineer. But as I understand it, the XB-70 did uh, lead to some important understanding of things like structural dynamics uh, and supersonic flight. The reason that we continued the program, even after we decided not to build more of the aircraft, was to better understand supersonic flight. But it's not a very similar aircraft, really, to the SR-71 uh, with the engines or anything like that. And it, this might be kind of surprising to hear, but actually the XB-70 was really kind of a dinosaur compared to the technology that was used in the SR-71. But you certainly would see it as part of the history of the development of the SR-71, if for no other reason than it really clarified where we were going to use the technology of supersonic flight, uh, because we kind of figured out that that wasn't going to be a successful way to build a bomber, but it might be a really good way to build an intelligence gathering, a surveillance aircraft. And when you come to that, then, of course, you want something that's going to be much smaller than the big six-engine XB-70. So you have to see it as part of the path to the SR-71 and, of course, whatever might be coming after the SR-71. Well, thank you to the History Guy for that insight onto some of these episodes that we are doing. We will continue to have sections like these as we do more podcasts, and we'll probably ask different kinds of questions. We'll kind of get some feedback from you guys as to how, how that works. Next up, we're going to talk about the XB-70 mid-air collision. In 1966, the XB-70 went up with a number of other experimental planes for a photo shoot for GE marketing that turned tragic. Airplane technology developed quickly in the 1950s, partly due to the competition of the Cold War. After Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier in the Bell X-1 in 1947, planes simply became faster and faster. In 1962, the Soviets introduced the Tupolev Tu-22, the world's first supersonic bomber aircraft. The American answer was a plane that was both ahead of and behind the times. The XB-70 Valkyrie was an amazing piece of cutting-edge technology that was based on outdated strategic thinking. And a tragic mid-air collision in 1966 with the prototype demonstrated the failings of an ambitious but troubled program. It is history that deserves to be remembered. In 1955, the U.S. Air Force issued a general operational requirement for an aircraft that could effectively deploy the nuclear weapons of the day. 
The requirement offered a challenge. The aircraft would have to be large enough to carry the weapons, which at the time weighed many tons, from the continental United States to the Soviet Union, and then be able to achieve supersonic speeds to escape the blast radius of the weapon. Building and fueling a supersonic plane that large would be pressing the envelope with the technology of the time. The plane would need to have the range and payload of a B-52, but the speed of a B-58 Hustler. Two paths were pursued simultaneously. One tested the prospect of a nuclear-fueled aircraft. The other would press the boundaries of capabilities from a conventional engine. The plane would require a combat radius of 4,000 nautical miles with a payload capacity of 50,000 pounds. It could have a subsonic cruising speed, Mach 0.9, but need to be able to achieve supersonic speed during the 1,000-mile entrance and exit to the target, called the DASH. Original designs used fuel tanks that would drop off when depleted and wing sections that would be jettisoned to change the shape of the wing. The designs were deemed too complicated, but advances were being made in supersonic flight, and new designs were on the horizon. New research focused on a narrow delta wing. There, the research had found a surprising result. At supersonic speeds, such wings burned more fuel, but were more fuel efficient. That is, while supersonic, they burned fuel at twice the speed as when subsonic, but were four times as fast. From a fuel-to-mile ratio, the plan with subsonic cruising speed and a supersonic dash made no sense. The new designs would use supersonic speeds the entire route. The advanced design ideas took advantage of new developments. For example, they suggested using boron-enriched high-energy fuel for the afterburners. The so-called zip fuel offered a great deal of extra energy, extending range. They also leveraged a new idea discovered through wind tunnel experiments on re-entering nuclear warheads called compression lift. At supersonic speeds, the nose of the plane would create compression waves. The plane could gain additional lift by carefully designing the aircraft to ride these waves. The concept is much the same as a bow that planes on its own wake. While the concept itself is basic, leveraging it on aircraft is highly complex. The concept still tested the outer limits of technology at the time and offered significant issues, among them cooling the significant heat caused by friction on leading edges at supersonic speeds. But the new requirements call for a plane with a cruising speed of Mach 3 to 3.2, an over-target altitude of 70,000 to 75,000 feet, a range of up to 10,500 miles, and a gross weight not to exceed 490,000 pounds. North American Aviation won the contract with an advanced design designated the B-70. The Air Force had a naming contest in 1958, and with an X added to denote the experimental prototype, the North American XB-70 Valkyrie was born. The XB-70 is an amazing aircraft, 196 feet long, 31 feet high at the tail, with a wingspan of 105 feet, powered by six turbojet engines. It is still to date the only potential production manned aircraft design to effectively leverage compression lift. And it was an outdated concept before the prototype was even built. As impressive as it is, and it is worth a visit to the Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio, just to see it, the XB-70 Valkyrie was based on concepts that were already fading. As bombers developed, the idea had been to make them fly faster and higher to escape both enemy anti-aircraft artillery and fighter aircraft. The XB-70 represents the high end of that philosophy. But by the late 1950s, anti-aircraft missiles were already demonstrating the weakness in that philosophy. 
Missiles could hit planes at any altitude and any speed. In fact, lower-altitude ground-hugging bombers offered better defense against anti-aircraft missiles than supersonic high-altitude bombers like the B-70 and had far lower operating costs. And as a delivery system for nuclear bombs, the rapidly developing nuclear missiles were more effective. Fleets of supersonic high-altitude bombers were simply not worth the expense. The B-70 program was canceled in 1959. The planes saw a brief reprieve in the presidential campaign of 1960, where both Democrat John Kennedy and Republican Richard Nixon were trying to portray each other as soft on defense. But by 1961, Kennedy was convinced that the plane was an unnecessary expense. In 1962, the massive spending that had already gone into the project would end up with a production of just two experimental aircraft that would be used to test various concepts of supersonic flight. The first of the XB-70 prototypes made its maiden flight, on September 21st, 1964. As impressive as the aerodynamic design was, the XB-70 was troubled in a number of ways. The design was vast and complex, and mechanical problems dogged every flight. The plane operated by stick and rudder controls with complex supersonic airframe that, in reality, required digital computer assistance that had not yet been invented to fly. The planes were flying Mach 3, but their operation was troubled. The extent of the problems was demonstrated starkly in a test flight by the second of the two prototypes on April 30, 1966. Shortly after takeoff from Edwards Air Force Base, the plane's landing gear retraction system shorted out. As a result of this malfunction, the nose gear was blown back into the partially retracted gear well door, slashing the tires. The crew, test pilots Al White and Joe Cotton, tried to lower the gear to land, but the hydraulic system failed. The front landing gear was stuck and not locked into position. The problem was significant. There is no way to belly land a supersonic jet. Cotton and White would either have to get the landing gear to extend normally, or the plane could not land. White and Cotton would have to bail out, and the $750 million prototype would be lost. The crew first tried touch-and-go landings, dangerous in such a large plane, hoping to force the front gear into locked position. It was a daring idea, but it didn't work. It looked like the plane was going to be lost. But White and Cotton had two more hours in the air to burn the fuel in the tanks, and that allowed them time to work the problem. They decided the best chance was to try to short-circuit the landing gear retraction system, but they didn't have the proper tools. Then Cotton came up with a solution. He dug in his briefcase and found a binder-type paperclip. He was able to short-circuit the breaker with the clip. The gear locked down, but Cotton and White had to land with the nose wheel tires slashed and no hydraulic pressure on one of the four main brake wheels. On landing, the gear exploded into flames, but the fire crews at Edwards were able to extinguish them before significant damage was done to the plane. The $750 million prototype was saved by a two-cent paperclip. The incident was not isolated. Cotton, for example, recalled a flight when an 18-inch by 10-foot wide section of wing came off the aircraft at Mach 3. He said it was like you woke up with an elephant in bed with you. That's how evident it was. The issues would turn to tragedy on June 8, 1966. Again, the plane involved was the second prototype, aircraft number 62-0207, the same one that had had the problem with the landing gear. Al White was back in the cockpit, this time with Major Carl Cross, piling the XB-70 for the first time. Joe Cotton was there as well, in the observer seat of a Northrop T-38 Talon jet trainer trailing the flight. The XB-70 is powered by six General Electric YJ-93 turbojet engines grouped in a single large duct under the aircraft, part of the design that allowed the compression lift.
that day. GE stockholders were being shown an observation flight, a photo opportunity where the VIPs would get to see the XB-70 flying in formation with a number of other planes. The day was described as having Kodachrome picturesque conditions, with high scattered clouds over Southern California's Edwards Air Force Base. The observers were in a Gates Learjet, the best option that would allow a good view and still be able to keep up. The Valkyrie was to fly in formation with the Northrop T-38A carrying Joe Cotton, a McDonald F-4B Phantom, a Lockheed F-104A Starfighter, and a Northrop YFA Freedom Fighter, all planes with GE engines. Cross and White had done some calibration runs earlier in the XB-70, and the photo run was added to the agenda. The F-104 was civilian registered and being flown by legendary test pilot Joseph A. Walker, who at the time held the world's records for flight altitude and speed. Walker had been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Medal with seven oak leaf clusters flying P-38 Lightnings during the Second World War. After the war, he became a research pilot with the Edwards Flight Research Facility. He flew the Bell X-1, a version of which would become the first plane to break the sound barrier. He was chief test pilot for the Douglas X-3 Stiletto and was one of only a dozen pilots to fly the record-breaking North American X-15. He frequently flew chase aircraft for NASA, and so was highly skilled in the maneuvering used for the demonstration flight of the XB-70, although he reportedly questioned the purpose of the flight, as it did not contribute to the research being done with the Valkyrie. The XB-70 would be flying at 25,000 feet, with the other aircraft in a wedge formation, with two trailing off its wings on either side. Walker in the F-104 was on the right side, next to the wing. It was not an easy position for a short-nosed fighter built for high-speed intercepts, not slow-speed photo opportunities. He was in a difficult position, trying to maintain a visually appealing distance from the F-5A to his right. The wing of the Delta Wing Valkyrie was behind him, and he could not easily see it. NASA later determined that it would have been difficult to assess his relative position simply by watching the Valkyrie's fuselage to his left but the experienced pilot maintained the formation for nearly 40 minutes while the GE marketing people and VIPs took pictures from the nearby Learjet. Then it came time to break formation. As Walker went to separate, he clipped the wing of the Valkyrie. The XB-70 had been flying with its wingtips lowered, configured for low-speed flight. This not only placed them in an odd position behind Walker, but meant more air disruption behind the wing. Walker likely never saw the wing before the collision, and it is possible the airflow behind the wing sucked him towards the Valkyrie. Caught in the powerful vortices behind the Valkyrie's delta wing, his plane was flipped upside down, was flung sideways into the giant left stabilizer of the bomber, shearing most of it off and cutting the F-104 into pieces that damaged the other stabilizer on the Valkyrie's left wing. Joe Walker, the veteran test pilot and decorated World War II hero, was killed instantly. The flaming wreckage of the F-104 trailed behind the giant Valkyrie. Inside the XB-70, Cross and White didn't even know they'd been hit. The plane was so large that the collision didn't even register. As they were trying to understand the sudden radio traffic, the plane's controls started acting funny. The first sign that the stabilizer had been sheared from the plane. Air Force Captain Peter Hogg, piloting the T-38 with Joe Cotton, yelled into the radio, Mid-air! Mid-air! Without the stabilizers, the Valkyrie started to roll. White tried to manage the roll by controlling the throttles. The strategy had been successful in other aircraft. But the six engines of the XB-70 are all next to each other on center line, allowing little leverage to control direction via the engines. The roll and yaw quickly became unmanageable, and the VIPs in the Learjet watched in horror as the plane started to spin like a frisbee. Hogg yelled, eject, eject, eject! The force from the spin was ripping the plane to pieces, and the wreck became surrounded in fuel vapor as the wing tanks ruptured. 
Somehow the fuel did not ignite, possibly because the plane was using JP-8 fuel that day instead of its normal, more flammable JP-4. The XB-70 had a special, in fact revolutionary system for crew ejection, designed to save the crew at supersonic speeds. Once activated, the system throws the crew member backwards into a pod which closes around them and ejects. It's an amazing system, but the plane was not in level flight but spinning wildly, subjecting the cockpit to all sorts of forces that confounded the system. White reacted quickly and the system managed to perform, but he was thrown around so violently that his right arm was caught in the closing capsule. He pulled himself free, but the arm was shattered. Cross was not so lucky. The g-forces of the spinning plane prevented the seat from moving back into the capsule. He was pressed forward, unable to escape. Before his capsule ejected, White could see Cross press forward, but could do nothing to help. Bog, seeing White shoot, radioed, shoot, shoot, shoot! But the second shoot never appeared. Cross was still with the plane as it pancaked into the California desert and exploded into flames. In his statement on the crash, President Lyndon Johnson said, Joe Walker and Major Cross gave their lives in the development of science and technology. Their deaths remind us of how dependent we are on men of exceptional ability in the development of new vehicles in flight. In the resulting investigation, several Air Force officers, including Joe Cotton, were faulted for allowing the flight to occur. It was determined that the photo opportunity flight was only done under continued pressure from the advertising and marketing agency of General Electric. The plane, which cost the equivalent of $5 billion in 2019 dollars, and the two veteran pilots were lost for a corporate brochure. The plane that was lost, aircraft number 620207, was the more capable of the two prototypes, but the first prototype kept flying and for another two years tested concepts of supersonic flight and the effects of sonic booms. Its last flight was on February 4, 1969, when it was flown from Edwards Air Force Base in California to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, where it was placed in the National Museum of the United States Air Force. And you can still see it there today. Uh, impressive monument to a bygone era, and to the extraordinary men who risked their lives to push the envelope of flight technology. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed these two segments of lesser-known history, each between 5 and 15 minutes long. If you would like more episodes on Forgotten History, subscribe to our YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered to watch any of our many videos, or stay tuned on your favorite podcasting website for more podcasts on Forgotten History. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon, or see us at our websites, thehistoryguy.net.